Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. So today's episode is all about bonding, and it's also about the paradox of bonding, which I'll explain as we go. And bonding is one of the three fundamental elements or components of what I call the natural advantage. So the first, obviously, is nature. The natural advantage gives us this really incredible, stable foundation for building our lives. And children need it. Adults need it. We all need these sort of three fundamental things. And nature is like the first one. The second one is all about the skills, learning life skills, learning how to self-actualize and take care of ourselves and do things and make things and build our self-esteem, etc. And then the third is about bonding. And bonding is all about this ability to form relationships with people and to be able to have people around us that actually see us, that they get us, and that they are supportive of us, and that they can listen, and that they are available to connect, to make a connection. And the bonding part is the kind of weakest one of it because it randomly happens in a way where it's not like a workshop where you can say, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to do bonding today. You can say, we're going to go out and do a hike to the waterfall. You can say, we're going to go learn how to plant the garden. But doing bonding is really something that happens unseen in a way. But it's an incredibly powerful ingredient that is absolutely essential. And bonding is one of those elements that is difficult to predict because it's like chemistry, right? If you're trying to form a relationship or you meet someone out somewhere and you just happen to have this like chemistry. I don't mean just romantically, but just something where all of a sudden you just recognize that other person in a way, something in them recognized something in you and you guys have a moment, whoever, whether you're out shopping or whatever you're doing, that kind of like electric moment can happen very quickly. Like it can be three minutes and all of a sudden there's just this awakening and it's almost a little electric. It's a little, it's a feeling that kind of ripples through both of you and you will each recognize that something happened or is happening. And again, it's not necessarily romantic. In fact, many times it's not, but it's just this kind of inner knowing of something about each other and feeling good about that connection. And there's something that older people have that is in the fairy tales and in some of the myths and so forth. I remember reading about this idea of being able to get the blessing of your father before you can go on this long journey or the blessing of your mother. You have it when they ask your hand in marriage. You you have this, you need to get that blessing from someone and that blessing is really powerful. And that in a way is part of what this is. It's just, it's like this recognition of you and saying, Hey, I'm really glad that you're going off to college and really proud of you. And we're here for you. And most of the time words don't really convey the depth and the power of what that bonding part is. And this is why I say it's a paradox because you're trying to harness lightning in a way. Like when you think about it in a larger context, it's really about being in the proximity of other people and being able to be open to something that might happen and being able to, and being willing to be really present and in the moment with your students or employees or whoever it is that you might want to connect to. And just being able to see them and just appreciating that moment and being there of being there with them and at that time in that in that space and being able to hopefully have an interactions that are fundamentally feeling helpful and useful. And most of the time in our lives, we have three main educational models, if you will, for how things unfold. And one of them is what I call the instructor model. 
or the instructor role. And that instructor is somebody that's usually instructing you in like scuba diving, or it could be going bow hunting, being a bow hunting safety instructor. It could be a driving instructor. It's like you usually someone who is there for a short period of time. They're going to teach you how to do CPR. They're going to teach you how to do first aid, whatever it is. You're going to get your certification. They're going to make sure you do everything good and effective, hopefully. And then you're out of there. You get your card, you get what you need, and then you move on. And hopefully they've done a really good job and you remember it and you stay alive when you're down there scuba diving or whatever. On the other side of it, you have teachers. And teachers are in a position where they are like an instructor because they're going to be covering subject matter that they have to cover. But they also have a little more time. It's going to take time to cover that but they have a time in and around that to do a little bit of connection with the group. And it's usually more of a group experience. It's a little, it can feel safe because the teacher is generally not trying to bond with you. They're just trying to connect to everyone. And so it's a safe feeling and you collectively laugh when they make a joke. And then you guys as the students, you make a joke and it's this nice feeling and you get to know the other person both ways, teacher and students. And it's just this like really wonderful relationship that can evolve into something really special. And if that teacher is, you know, open to making those deeper connections, it can lead to that kind of bonding, which is wonderful. Doesn't always. And usually if I'm describing this, people who you probably are thinking right now, oh yeah, my third grade teacher, boom, I definitely bonded with her or him, whatever. Or you think, oh, my social studies teacher when I was in 10th grade, oh yeah, that person really saw me and tried to educate me in way more than just the Vietnam War and the Constitution or whatever else that you guys were learning. You know what I'm talking about because you know when someone is emotionally and physically able to be present in their body with you in that time and space and not be guarded and not be defensive and whatever else is going on. Teachers are definitely on the spectrum, but they're at the narrow end of the spectrum where they usually are just super, super busy and they love those people, those kids they are working really hard. They just oftentimes are just overwhelmed because there's so many kids, there's so much stuff to do and they're just trying to not lose their mind as they're going forward. Not all teachers are like that, but get the idea. And then the third type of mentor or role, I should say, is mentors who are usually people who have achieved a certain level of proficiency in a skill or in a position of authority in, say, a company or a school or whatever. And they are in a position to actually have time. Their kids are gone out of the house. They have a little bit more free time. They're not so swamped with like daily life that they can actually decide, oh, I actually have time to mentor this young person here and or younger person and help them up through whatever they're trying to learn or grow into. And a mentor in that regard is someone who will say, hey, if you want, I'd be happy to mentor you in nonprofit customs and law, or I can help mentor you in becoming a senior salesperson or a manager, or they have different objectives. Oftentimes I'm just putting out like as a business thing, but mentors can also be someone who says, Hey, I will help you learn tracking, or I will help you learn how to go fishing or something like that. And they just go and spend time with them. And it usually involves a lot of listening. And then getting, it's a two-way experience, but the mentor is definitely someone who is going to try to listen and, and get a feel for not only what they think might be going on, but to understand what's actually going on for those that they're mentoring and supporting them. And those are the three kind of categories that I would say are in place. And oftentimes when I look back and when, or when I talk to people about people who mentored them or bonded, that they felt bonded or connected to, many times it's, oh, it's my aunt or my uncle or my grandmother or my grandfather. 
And, and there's a good reason for that in a, in a family scenario, because in a family, your mom and dad are almost always just like flat out trying to just keep everything together, keep things happening, keep a nice flow going. They're working their jobs. They're doing whatever they got to do to make things go smoothly. But when you have a family gathering or visiting with grandparents, the grandparents are like, hey, I'm retired or hey, I'm about to go get retired. And so when they are in that position, they have more time. They, their life isn't quite packed with a thousand details. They've already got a lot of things figured out and they have a routine for those and they don't occupy a lot of the same space in their brain. So they're in a place where they can actually slow down and really see you. They can really listen to your stories. They can say, oh, tell me about your what you did this week. Or they're going to ask really good questions that oftentimes your parents might just be too busy. They, they want to ask those questions. They just are not really, they're already packed full uh, with everything they have to do. Oftentimes those other figures, those other people in your life have a little more space and it really helps them to give you that access that you're looking for often as a, as a child or as a young person, or even in today's world for all of us as adults listening to this. And even for, even in today's world where we as adults are also looking for those kinds of connections. So having space inside of you is a really important component to bonding and a big part of mentoring, like I said, is listening. So it's about the capacity to ask questions, think for a little bit, like you don't have to immediately respond and you can have a, an experience of just being with those people and getting an impression and then passing something back. And it's not necessarily something that you have to do immediately. It's not rushed. It has this like nice quality to it if you're in that mentoring capacity. Now, bonding, like I said before, can be more chemistry related or energy related, meaning that you could have a moment where you feel like, oh, wow, there's this really good bonding moment. And then you might not spend a lot of time with that person after that in terms of feeling you you just automatically are connected now. And so you just feel okay. When you're around that person, you're like, all right, I feel good about that. I feel good about myself. I don't feel like I have to hide who I am. It just opened the gate and it's like the doors open. It does not mean you have to be in a bonding experience all day long. Like nobody really wants to stay in one form of human relationship. It would be weird. You have the, the things where you wake up in the morning, you have that kind of, let me get started in my day. You have that moment where you feel really happy to like, go, oh, hey, I'm getting ready to go. I'm going to miss you. Say, have a good day. So you have that kind of interaction. You have joking, you have working hard and trying to solve something. You have something where you're like, you, we just go through so many different kinds of states of mind that I want to be really clear. The bonding part is so important, and yet it it really only happens for maybe like five percent of the time, in a way. But you can be in a relationship mo mode where you're just open to making a connection emotionally, and is enough. You don't even necessarily have to act on it or even say anything. You're just there and you're present. So that's the paradox in a way, is that it's a relationship thing that you feel, but it's also, if you talk about it, it's weird. It'll be weird. It'll be awkward. Nobody's going to say, hey, I caught home from my summer camp and then, hey, dad, I bonded with Ricardo Sierra when he was teaching me fire making. They're not going to say that. <laughs> that would be weird. That would be not cool because number one, parents are like, hey, I want to bond and do stuff with you. And I, they're going to feel like, hey, how come everybody else gets to make that connection? That's the, You're my son. You're my child. In most cases, a child or a student is going to share about that, maybe that bonding or that mentoring moment, really just through a story. 
So they'll just say, oh, Ricardo helped me to get a fire without matches and I did it all by myself. Or, hey, we went fishing and he showed me a technique on how to cast the line further so I could actually get a fish or whatever. There's these little stories that come out, but they really aren't going to center on bonding per se, or even mentoring per se. So it's really, that's another element of the paradox in a way is that it's just, it's like fight club, right? Like first rule of fight club, don't talk about fight club. But that is just a series of paradoxes that, that this whole experience has. And I want to re be really clear. You don't go into, in my opinion, a situation where there's a lot of children or a lot of students or a lot of adults or whatever looking to bond. You basically find and create a space inside of yourself that says, I am open to connecting and, you know, seeing a whole person, the whole whoever is out here that might need some support or guidance or just need someone to see that they're working really hard. That's it. And then that's the movement. The movement is internal. It's an internal process. And at that point, if you're doing it right, if you're really just holding that space that says you're available, at some point down the road, someone will recognize that and maybe step up and you'll have an experience. It might be just, hey, I fell down and I need a Band-Aid. And I go, hey, let me see what I can find. Have a seat over here. And you just have this moment where you're taking care of them and you're asking them about how their day is. And it's just a nice moment. Is it bonding? Is it like, you don't need to label it, but it's just that you're available and that they're there. And that might be the first step of someone learning to trust you and to trust that you, they can come to you with things that they're working on or things that they're trying to do and things that they want to show you because they're really proud of themselves. So it's, again, this interesting experience of being able to just have enough room inside your life, inside your being, that is allowing you to be present and available and being in a position where you're not all about judgment and needing to be right and needing to have a lot of attention and getting your feedback about you. It's not about you. It's about them. And I can say that it's very difficult to find young staff people who can really do this effectively. Uh, most of the time, younger staff, their life is packed with stuff. They're just really busy. They're trying to do everything right. They're learning and they're able to be a little bit available and they're able to have fun in the context of the games and the experiences that you're having, but they might not really be able to do it consciously because they're still just in that process of needing that space for themselves and needing other older staff to be able to provide that space for them and have those moments, so to speak. So the best way that we can develop that if you're in an environment where you have a number of people working with younger children is to be able to cultivate that at the highest level in your organization and begin to trickle that downward in a way that just has the ability or that increases the capacity for people to feel good about themselves, feel safe, feel emotionally safe, and to be able to feel like they can express whatever they're going through and knowing that they're going to get some support and so forth. And obviously your day is filled with cleaning up after your activity and prepping for the next one and doing all the daily stuff. So it's challenging. It's challenging. I'm not going to take anything away from that. If you're running a program and you're, run, you're leading and teaching other staff members and you're part of that team, you're going to have your hands full already. So I'm really not trying to put this thing on and say, oh, you also have to bond. Again, short period of time. It's a, it can, it happens when it happens. You're just opening and developing that capacity to have an experience of really helping someone and being there for them and listening. So active listening is a really big key. Also asking questions to pull out some things in a way that's not creepy. 
Okay. Again, if you're trying too hard to bond or mentor someone, it's going to be creepy. It will blow up in your face. And because people do not, they can sense really quickly. It doesn't matter what age a person is. They can sense what's going on, what you're doing. And sometimes there are people who are really, how do I say this? They're, they've experienced a lot of trauma and they're like desperate to have somebody say that they're okay. Those people are easy to take advantage of because they, they feel this like void inside themselves and they want to fill it with something good, that good stuff. And so if you hint at that, they sometimes will, they can be manipulated. And so you, we really want to make sure that we're not doing that, that we're not trying to fill that deep void in them and trying to do what they call love bombing, which they say people use for manipulation purposes where you're just like, you're so great. You're fantastic. Oh, you're this. They just love bomb them. They're just like, I just love you so much. Like it's not just expressed verbally, but it's like just body language, everything else. And that kind of like praise and constant like positive feedback can feel really good at the time in a way that they cannot refuse. And it, again, it will backfire on you unless your intentions are really for that person's highest good. And love bombing is not a, a recommended tactic in any of this sort of stuff because we want it to feel authentic and real. And part of things being real is having the good and the bad, having a real connection and real and relationship. And that, again, it's all about asking questions. So if somebody comes up to you that you've been in a little group or something and they say, hey, I'm having trouble with so-and-so, love bombing would be like, oh, you're great. You'll figure it out. You're the best or something. And trying to pump them up when they're really actually asking you for support and actually giving feedback. And part of your feedback might go, hey, you know how you yelled at that person? They might, just throwing it out there, they might not appreciate that. And that could be part of it. And reflect, being a mentor can be like reflecting back what, what they're putting out and then coming back. Not in a, let me show you what it's like, but more just posing it as a question in a way that they might be able to circumvent defensiveness and get and find a, a different awakening of awareness and maybe a different path. I will say that for a lot of younger children, if you're working with really young children, their capacity for self-reflection and then to understand and do things differently, very low. They are just not typically, their brains have not quite formed enough yet where they, you can tell them that they will say they understand, but they don't really understand what you're talking about. It's like when you try to teach like a third, four-year-olds about the planets. They don't know what a planet is. They don't know what Mercury is. and all. They might be able to recite and memorize some names. They have no idea what they mean or what they are. Even if you show them like a bunch of models or pictures or anything, they really can't quite put it all together. They just don't have enough of the synapses and everything together because they're still trying to figure out like, where's the grocery store? And where's the river? And where's the mountain behind our house? And uh, where does our front lawn end and the road begin? And will my cat make it across the road safely? Like they're just, they're going to expand from inside out. And we don't need to uh, try to push that envelope too fast. So we don't, we want to let everything happen at the pace that it naturally will happen. Okay. There's no advantage to getting children to learn all these relationship tricks at four years old and push that as, oh, when you say this, I feel blah, blah, blah. They won't even get it, number one. And number two, it's just, it feels yicky because you really want to just let them do their thing and figure it out. I read something today that just said the best way to let children learn how to make good decisions is to let them make a lot of decisions and then find out what happens. It's not to tell them about how to make good decisions. It's about to just let them make those. Again, part of mentoring can be painful because as you're 
mentoring or bonding, you can watch people that you care about kind of struggle. And sometimes you have to like, just let them do their thing and not try to remind them every single time you see them that they were wrong about something or right about whatever. Really good idea to have that, I don't want to say thick skin's not the right word, but it's about having a little bit of professional distance maybe, but it's something about being able to hold that person there in, in your mind's eye and hold them and really support them and also not make it about you where you go, oh, I'm going to give them more good advice so that they can make good decisions so that I'll look good because I'm their mentor or something. Man, this stuff is very subtle and it's really nuanced. And it can be, there's a hundred ways it can be misconstrued. And at the same time, there's a really good sweet spot that's just awesome when you can just be available. And I would just really urge you to, if you're looking to hire people in your program to work with, you really, it's very difficult to get someone who is like available. And if they're not available, it's difficult to then predict that they will become more available, available as time goes by. That oftentimes doesn't happen because they may or may not actually move into that space. Personally, for me, I would rather hire people who have the capacity to bond and connect with other people, even if they don't have a lot of wilderness skills. Every single time I've ever hired someone who had really good wilderness skills, but was a little iffy on the relationship building part, I always regretted it. I mean, looking back, and I don't mean I regretted it like I don't like them as a person or that they didn't do a good job for me or whatever. I'm just saying that it created problems and it took me a while to learn that just because they have those skills does not mean that's enough. The skills are the tangible things. Going, Being able to take people tracking, being able to make a fire without matches, being able to lead awareness games and so forth. Those are all hard skills that are really wonderful. But when you're go- when you go to hire other people, it's really important to have an understanding of what the soft skills are and to be able to ask questions that will demonstrate based on their answers whether they know anything about what you're talking about and whether they have that capacity to be able to connect. And if they don't have that, you're it's better to steer steer clear of that if you if that's what you're wanting your program to be based on. And I made sure at one point I just got, got tired of messing up. So I just started adding that to my chart when I would ask questions of prospective employees. I would say, hey, let's do an interview. I'll tell you about my program. I'll tell you what we're looking for. And then I'll say, here's some of the skills we do. Here's what a typical day looks like. And then I'll ask them questions like, what are things that you know how to do? And then I'll have another section that's just talking about how good are they at storytelling? How can you tell me a story about someone that you helped in one of your programs previously and listen to the response? And it's the, it's not just something about, I'm not looking for a specific answer. I'm looking for a feeling and an awareness. And, and then if they have that, there's a little box I check. There's, I have three different boxes and I'm just like, oh yeah, they have empathy check. Oh yeah, they have the capacity to make good decisions and communicate what's going on, uh, communicate their way out of a paper bag, check, and then something else. I forget what the other one is. But the point here is that you want to hire people for the skills they have, not the skills or that they might develop uh, because they, you just don't know. And that's the problem is that they are going to change. And so you never know, you might, you might pass up on that, but Believe me, it will create far more chaos and stress and work for you if you hire someone who you think is going to solve your skill problem, but they don't fit that soft skill area. It will disrupt everything, creates a really unsafe, emotionally unsafe working environment. Like it's just, it's, it's like a dumpster fire. It just, it's like a crash and burn type of thing in slow motion. And I've learned now I can actually see it happening as it's happening. And then 
I usually have to then make a decision quickly so that it just can course correct and get us all on track. So another aspect of mentoring and bonding and building relationships has to do with something that I discovered, man, I think it it was probably like 1989, 88, maybe in the 90s, I don't know. But it was an article I read on, in the a magazine called The Utney Reader, which I don't know if it even exists anymore. I haven't seen it in a long time. But this magazine had an article about this guy named John Gottman. And John Gottman is a uh, researcher on relationships. And he spent, I don't know, 10 years like studying like couples in these elaborate, what he called the love lab sort of thing, where he had these apartments and they had ways to see into the apartments for people to live there in like someplace in Seattle. And he really studied people and couples for various behaviors that they found were indicators of a good marriage or a good relationship and one that was on the rocks. And they found that as they started to gather and compile data in the types of interactions they were having, they could predict whether people would stay together and get closer, stay together, but in a distant sort of way and, or break up. And they were really good at it. And it's one of the only data-driven relationship advice and models that I've ever come across. And I appreciate that. I want to share those insights with you because I do believe and have found this to be true. And he's got a lot of stuff in there with him and his wife and all the other people that work there. Go there, check his website out, whatever. It, it's definitely worth checking out. But part that's really important for us as forest educators is to remember that there is a kind of a re positivity ratio, he calls it, where you can look at your relationship with a person and predict pretty accurately as to whether that relationship is positive, neutral, or negative. And it's essentially a five to one ratio. I'd actually say it was probably closer to 71 seven to one ratio of having seven positive interactions with another person to every one negative interaction. And that means that your ratio is important because what you're trying to do is to build up in a bank of a good, strong, solid connection that if you then turn around and go, oh no, who left my field guide out in the rain? Shoot, and you're really upset. And then the other person goes, oh, I did it, I'm sorry. And you're like, dang it. When you're frustrated, that's a negative interaction. But because you overall have these other positive things, it can weather that and be fine. And it's okay, we're back on track. It's okay, we'll work it out. However, whatever we need to do to resolve it, because we both want to resolve that experience. The positive and the negatives can be very subtle. And when I say that positive, it's not something like, oh, I like your shirt, your shoes are nice, and I like the way you wear your hair, and you make a fire, and so therefore that's good, and say that's positive. Like These are real, authentic, positive interactions. So a positive interaction could be winking at somebody as you walk by when they're in the middle of an argument with someone else, and you're like letting them know that you're like, hey, I see you, you guys are having fun and you're doing your thing right on. Hey, you're, you don't want to interrupt them, but you're just like, good to see you. Boom. And you go on your way. That's positive. It's not a whole interaction. It's not a compliment. It's just a recognition, um, positive interaction showing up and going, Hey, here's a, here's this thing that I told you I was going to get for you. Here's this article about making a fire or first aid or something. Hey, I got this for you. It's just all of these little things that add up and many of them are unconscious. So these are essential for life. This is not just, oh, if you're a forest educator, this is good to keep in mind. This is essential for life. As a program director, if you're running programs, your job is going to be to make sure that you are having seven to one with all of your staff meaning that you're having positive interactions and connections there 
so that if you then turn around and go, hey, on a Tuesday, you went, you guys didn't clean up after yourself at this. You never restocked the first aid kit. And I got in the camp truck and it was out of gas. Like, that's fine as long as like Thursday, Friday, and Monday are days where you have had a lot of fun. You've been learning something new and sharing and and listening to music or whatever. And you've put a bunch of stuff in the bank. Okay. Most of the time we do this naturally, but oftentimes for directors or program people, when we're leading, we can sometimes slip into a mode where we forget. And then what happens is we start having more negative. When that number drops down to three to one or two to one, John Gottman says, if you're under five, you're in trouble. And if you get down to one to one or even into the negatives, you're probably the other person is backing away internally away from you. And they're like, they're looking for another job on whatever, whatever. I forget the name of those, those job dating or job sites or something. But the point is that you're, it's hard to remember that if you're just overwhelmed and really busy. So it's really essential that we don't create more problems because we're being really busy and not being able to be present and be able to connect with the people we work with. That's just something to throw out there as educators and as develop as program developers and leaders and so forth. And this goes not only for the students in our programs, it goes for the staff, it goes for the other people we work with, whether it's parents, it could be other teachers, it could be other school administrators. Like when I go into an after-school program, I almost always see the janitor running up and down the halls doing something. And I always like to say, hey, how's it going today? Because I know that janitor has a hard job and I want to make sure that if he's cleaning up my basket making thing that went on in the room that we're in, that he's not going to feel like we're making extra work for him. So I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to say, hey, we're making a big mess down here. Is there any way that I can get an extra broom so we can really clean that up so you don't have to deal with it? And that goes a long way. That, that helps build goodwill for your program for a long time. If you can consistently do that. Teachers that come in, having something kind to say instead of sarcastic, having something funny, having a laugh, having, it's not, it's not personal. It's not like coming in and going, oh, you look good in that dress or something. Number one, if you're a guy, that's creepy. It's not necessary to do that. We don't need to mention anybody's appearance or any of that. It's really about whether the person is like overweight or underweight or just right or whatever, generally saying and making compliments a lot about other people's appearance is a, from what I've learned, it's generally not helpful because if you look and you go, oh, that kid's really athletic, then the three other kids that are standing there behind you are suddenly thinking, oh, we're not athletic because we're, we haven't developed yet or whatever. And they might start feeling bad about themselves. If you say, oh, I really like how you, how you, your hair is or something to one girl, another person's going to say, oh, they must not like my hair. It's just, there's just no reason to say anything about anybody's physical things that are going on. You could say, hey, your leg's bleeding. Do you want a Band-Aid? Or you can say, hey, I think you're getting a sunburn. Let's get some uh, sunscreen on. Whatever it is, it's, it can be helpful, but it's most of the time not helpful. It will get in the way of you bonding. I have been very careful about trying to do this over the last eight years. And I'm sure I've messed up at times. But every time I ever have, I have seen the subtle ripple of not only the impact of something I said, even just casually, it, having that ripple ripple through the entire group. And it's, I'm just telling you, when you get sensitive to what is, what that dynamic is, you will pick up on that. And then you'll be out with a group of students and someone else will come in and go blah, and they'll say something and you'll see it. And that's when you'll be like, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. Again, 
there's a paradox here with bonding and these relationships in terms of how to connect with students and be available to them. It's so nuanced. It's tricky. I don't know if me even just saying this is helpful or not, because you may not really get it, even though I'm sharing it. It's like mentoring. A lot of people talk about mentoring and they're like, hey, we're going to do mentoring. Everyone likes to talk about mentoring. You can't learn really about mentoring unless you're actually being mentored by someone. So doing a workshop on mentoring, not really helpful. Intellectually fill your brain with a bunch of stuff of what you think it is, but that's not going to tell you what it feels like to know that someone's actually spending time with you and they're not making it all about themselves and they're going to ask you good questions. Like it's such a, it's such a good feeling when someone cares enough to ask you those questions. Like it's really awesome. And you have to have those experiences in order to be able to really create that for other people. If this is nuanced, it's tricky. I'm no, no way around it. This is, in my opinion, harder than making a fire with a bow and drill. It's harder than making a, I don't know, a Comanche style buffalo bow and arrow or something like I've never made any of those. And I wouldn't hunt a buffalo with it if I did make it. But the point is, things that are complicated and hard on a physical level are way easier generally to solve and to understand and figure out than understanding these things. Uh, Unless you have someone pointing out these things and then helping you learn and if also having the desire to be able to do it. So let's just talk for a second about how we know when that bonding has happened, when mentoring has happened, when kids are feeling safe in a program or adults are feeling safe in a program. One of the key elements that you'll see if students are feeling safe, emotionally safe, I'm not talking about physical safety. I'm assuming that everybody's physically safe most of the time. I don't mean that they don't have risky play. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sure there's tons of risky play people that are being like, we don't want them to be safe. Ricardo's saying red alert. No, don't send me an angry message about that. I'm just saying like, how do you know when you're with a group of students and they are all feeling emotionally safe with each other and with the staff? And Usually I see a number of behaviors and one of them is their ability to laugh like really hard laughter where you like your stomach hurts and somebody stops, just stop. I'm I'm laughing so much. I can't stop. That's a really good sign. Singing. If students are just singing without any thought of other children making fun of them, That's a really good sign. Uh, Students helping each other, students volunteering to help clean up or whatever. Um, Students coming in and asking questions about what you're doing and not, and feeling okay about asking a lot of questions so that they're not afraid of looking like they're a teacher's pet or trying to uh, be laughed at because they're into whatever we're doing. Like they're just authentically being themselves, like they're forming friendships and having really nice conversations. It doesn't always have to do with something outward. Sometimes you can just see it in their eyes that they just are looking around and they're able to just sit still and then say, oh, I'm really enjoying this right now. I'm enjoying this moment. That's awesome when that happens. So those are some of the signs that this is what happens. And on the flip side, when you hear someone make a joke and there's a very, very small flutter of laughter that dies out really quickly. Good sign that things are not emotionally safe. When you say, does anybody have any questions? And no one has a question, probably not emotionally safe. Sometimes you ask a question and they just don't know enough to even ask anything. So it's not always that. But you want to think about how the relationships and how the group feels. You can feel when there's a problem. A lot of people who are instigators in a group where they're like acting out at times or getting ready, they don't think that anybody can really feel or pick up on that stuff. They believe that they can fake their way through it and that no one's going to notice. But when you get tuned into these kinds of group 
understandings to, to be able to read the group in that way. You pick on it, uh, you pick up on it really fast. And it's really interesting. I When I pick up on groups not feeling really safe, that tells me a number of things. Oh, do we need to do more games or do we need to do something that will help people that are maybe helping to contribute to the group not being safe, people that themselves don't feel safe? How can we help them feel more safe? How can we put them in leadership positions? How can we help them get engaged? And support them in that process. So we consciously will change what I, I'll do that for what I do, what we do with our, in our camp and in a camper school group program. We will just do our best to manage that and to shift our activities or framing the activities in a way that will help champion a different way of leadership and a different way of being together. And it's okay if it's not safe sometimes, because groups sometimes need to be unsafe for a little bit in order to like make it work out. Sometimes they, it will blow up a little bit because sooner or later it gets really uncomfortable. When students are not feeling safe, they're spending a tremendous amount of energy trying to defend themselves against whatever might be happening. Oh, I got to be really careful. I got to be careful what I say. I got to be careful who I say it to. I got to, I want to, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I got to share this, but I don't know how to share it and who to share it with. And if they're going to tell so-and-so, it's just, it's 80% of a seventh grader's experience because they're just like storing a lot of that. And it's true for other ages as well, where you're just, it, it takes so much energy to be in an unsafe environment. And it's so uncomfortable. If I'm in an unsafe environment, I just get out of there because I'm an adult and I can just get up and go, all right, I'm out. I'm not, I spent enough years being in bad, toxic environments that I just refuse to be in that. And I'll just say, hey, why don't you guys call me when you guys get it together or, or you get whatever, when the group forms in a different way. But for children, they can't do that. Sometimes with adults, they can't do that. That's where you can help strengthen the people who want to make that change and have them begin to say, Hey, you know what? We make a safe group by what we do. And uh, a lot of what I have done in my programs is to share stories about not necessarily wilderness survival stories, but I'll share stories about when I was a kid and I was in a group that didn't feel safe. I won't say it exactly like that because I don't want to put their group on the spot, but I'll just bring it up and say, yeah, I was in this one group. My, my mom had put me in this camp and there was like three people there that really didn't get along. And you know how sometimes people talk and they divide and everyone has to pick sides and everything. And, and everyone was mad at me because I didn't want to pick a side and they, whatever, that kind of story, they will all, you will see, if you ever want to see like sixth or seventh graders, their heads swivel really fast. You just start telling a story about your childhood and about something that happened to you and they will turn around and go, boom, like you, you could be talking about chickadees or something and they might not care. But all of a sudden you talk about that. They are, can relate to that because they're in that moment. And I'll, I'll just describe it and be like, oh yeah, it's really, it was brutal. And then I usually have a long pause and then one of them will go, Tell us what happened. What did you do? Or, and I'll say, oh, okay. If you want to, oh, I didn't know you wanted to hear more. And I, I play stupid a lot and I like to draw them out and have them ask me what I, what I did or what the solution was just because I want to see if they'll actually ask. But when they do, I will share about what happened and I'll share how sometimes these things are really short lived. I'll share how one minute, Someone is like their mortal enemy and then, then 10 minutes later or two days later, they're like best friends and they're going to the movies together and you're just going, I don't know what's happening, uh, but it's, it, I talk about ways that it can break apart. The idea here is that you're wanting to model it without telling them what to do. And when you, if you do happen to make them a mistake of challenging something head on with a group like that. It usually doesn't work that well 
because they know what you all want them to do or how to be. But the, the point that they're doing is they're trying to struggle to figure it out for themselves. So hearing your stories is way better. And even after you tell a bunch of those stories, you might still have to deal with two or three days of their struggling. But at, at some point, everyone will just get so of the, of the whole thing that they will just let go and go, forget it. I don't care anymore. And then they just get along and they're like, this is so much better. Why didn't we do this three days ago? Five to one ratio. Listen, ask questions, uh, be available. Don't try to bond. That's creepy. Don't manipulate. Really hold the best intentions, the highest self of the people you work around, not just for your clients, but also for your staff members and your friends and your, your family and to invest in the people around you. And if you're in a position where you're around a lot of people that are not investing in you in the same way, you might want to get out of there. So just food for thought. You might want to choose to make a decision to move to a more positive situation. Way easier sometimes than trying to change people. Uh, a lot of people are highly resistant to change or they are set in their ways because they there are these like patterns that we hold that are related to our trauma or whatever, and they're very difficult to break. So if you're someone that's, hey, I'm a camp counselor and the director's going through a lot of stuff, probably you're not going to influence them that much to do, to really get to the other side of that. So you may just want to, boom, get to find a, a camp where maybe that's not happening. And honestly, these things are happening everywhere. You're probably not going to ever find something that it will be completely free, if you will, because it's the same everywhere. What's happened, it happens in schools, it happens in construction crews, it happens in sales, it happens in engineering departments. Everywhere you go, people are people, and they're just trying to figure out and get make things happen. But we are really in a position as educators to be available in a bonding and a reaffirming way with the students that we have at a really important time in their life, where if they can get that recognition and feel really solid and be able to go there and say, hey, here's a story of something that happened and feel heard, it is incredibly um, helpful for their internal world and to help them build a sense of who they are and that they're okay. So good luck. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all you do. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.